podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Ben Moran, and today's guest with Sean Scott Hacks. How are you, brother? I'm good. I'm alive. I'm on the right side of the dirt. I can't say that for a lot of people that uh, I he grew up with. Years. Yeah. Been in prison, spent over 20 years in prison. 24 years, nine months, 18 days. A long time. Part of the Winter Hill Gang, which is an Irish mob from Boston. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, my uh, uncle was one of the founders, uh, Howie Winter, along with Buddy McLean. Before we get into everything, no brother, I always like to go back to the start. Get a bit of understanding about you, where you grew up, and how it all began. I grew up um, South Boston, Dorchester. Um, fourth grade education. I wasn't good in school. Uh, finished up my education in prison, and uh, I had to tell everybody. I got to be honest. I did it to get out of my damn cell. So, <laughs> what was family life like then? Did you understand what the family business was, or were you oblivious to it? <sighs> I was oblivious till I was a teenager. Quite late then. Yeah. Um, my mother, um, which is detailed in uh, chapter one of The Devil to Pay, A Mobster's Road to Perdition. Yeah, but where can people buy it and plug it straight away? Um, it is, uh, it's on pre-sale all around the world right now. Uh, I think it's in 20 different languages. Uh, it's Blackstone Publishing, Barnes & Noble. My daughter, my my 27-year-old daughter actually said that, she sent me a picture. She said, they kind of thing with you in a picture and targets already with your book but it comes out march 26 um 2024 blackstone publishing but it's everywhere oh. yeah did your mom try to keep you away from that life no uh-huh my mother was uh for lack of better words a gun mole she was a a whore so you know it's uh she was pregnant with me my uh Never met my biological father. I was the uh, bastard seed of the family. Um, and she was shacking up with another guy that was uh, fixing horse races for the Irish mob. And uh, he beat her pretty bad one night. I think she was about seven, seven months pregnant with me. And the gentleman that raised me, who I consider my father, was a Jewish bookie. Um, that guy disappeared. They said he went to Florida. No one's ever, you know, no one ever saw him again. So, yeah. It's funny though, because every, I always say this, but every bad man I've interviewed, every murderer, kidnapper, drug lord, prostitute, porn star, they all come from a broken home. Everyone. Um, my mother was uh, a prostitute. She got hooked on drugs. Um, she eventually died of uh, AIDS. Um, I didn't really care too much for my mother. Um, I was raised, uh, like I said, by uh, Henry Simons, a Jewish bookie. And uh, I think I was 15. A car pulled up on a construction site one day. And um, the gentleman got out and he walked up to my father and he said, it's time for him to know who he is. So your life's always been from the day you were born, full of torment yeah. and misery. Yeah, um, it's it's been it's been rough, man. But you know something, it's uh, I chose that path. It was alluring to me. 
once, I mean, when, they, when, when I got in that car that day, my father, who raised me, had tears in his eyes. What did they say? They told him, he's coming with us. <laughs> Simple as that, he's coming with us. Now he needs to know who he is. And um, it started at 15. Um, I would go to upstate uh, New England, Maine, Vermont. Um, it started with pistols. It started with rifles, learning how to shoot um, with ex-military guys. And then from there, it was back down to Boston. Um, a lot of Krav Maga stuff. Uh, and basically, when I got older, I figured out, I was like, these guys just molded me like a potter does clay to become this perfect weapon, like, um, I don't know, an associate, not an associate, a friend, a colleague, whatever the hell you want to call him now, because we talk almost every day. He's a, a former mobster, and um, now he works with the prison system and stuff like that, and he's like, man, they, they, they molded the, the real-life John Wick. It was, it was crazy. Who took you away? Who was that? My uncle. How we went there. So How we went there, there, James Whitey Bulger, Stevie Fleming, they were all uncles. Uh -huh. I just call it, but everybody was Uncle Jim, Uncle Stevie, Uncle Kevin, Uncle Johnny. Everybody was an uncle. And you didn't know that life until that moment? Of, uh, yeah, it started at 15. started at 15. I mean, my mother bounced me around all around the country. Um, uh, it, it, again, it's all, it's all detailed in the book. Like, she would shack up. Uh, we were in Florida when I think I was eight or nine. With uh, she was shacking up with um, a Greek shipping magnate, um, Thomas Thanasi, and at the same time, she uh, was shacking up with um, the, the chief of the Miami Dade Police, who was arrested and disgraced for corruption. Yeah, she was. Uh... Why did the family wait fifteen years to come and get you? I think they just were waiting for me to come of age. To be used, though. To be used, to be like a soldier. To be molded as a soldier. And they took you away, like for some training camp, like military school. Not a military school, just uh, putting me with um, different people to learn different things. What are you thinking then? Were you just happy to have some sort of family around you? I was, um, yes, because uh, at that point they uh, I was catered to and and. Um, I had attention that I didn't have for my mother. Everybody was waiting on me, and it was just, it was crazy. It was crazy. What did you do after that then, when you come back to Boston? How old? Um, the, uh, 18, yeah, 18. So you went away for three years, yeah, years. kind of learning the family trade? Yeah. What were you doing after that? Because I know you've done robberies and kidnappings. Uh, kidnappings, attempted murders, uh, bank robberies, uh, extortion, racketeering, uh, a lot of violence, all violence, yeah. Were you any, did you have any signs of violence on the way up to 15 years old, or were you quite a... No, yeah, um, up to 15, yeah, my mother used to beat me daily. Yeah. So you've like suffered my, a lot yeah, of torment? Yeah, my, my mother would smack me and I'd say, what the fuck did you just do that for? She goes, because you're going to fuck up at some point today, and if I'm not around, let me just get it in now. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, like I said, my mother, when she got bad on the drugs, um, she would entertain gentlemen a lot. 
And you just, you know, when you're a young kid, you know, six, seven, eight years old, and you're listening to three guys pound your mother in the other room, I guess it does something to you. Um, I saw, I saw my first murder at five. I was told to go sit on the front porch. Um, and after my mother got done entertaining, um, a gentleman came out and he would always give me a dollar after he got done screwing my mother. And he was a drug dealer. He, uh, was a heroin dealer and, um, Gave me a dollar. Cadillac pulled up. Guy got out. Double barrel shotgun saw it off and blew his brains out. While I was standing next to him, he was all over me. And he looked at me and he goes, what did you see, little man? And I said, nothing. I saw nothing. Yeah, so. So you had a whole life? Just fucking misery and violence and pain, and it's a sad existence because there's so many kids like yourself who've had that upbringing who couldn't. It's it's not a humane thing to see. No, it's not. It's not normal to be getting beatings off parents. Listen, there's got to be some element of discipline, especially in this day and age. We've got a softened generation, but to be beating kids and telling them they're not good and seeing murders and seeing your mum being abused—that's child abuse for you. There's nobody there to protect you and feel safe. All kids ever want to do is feel loved. Even humans, all we want to do is feel loved. But sometimes when you go through a life of torment, even when you get love, you fucking push it away. That was one of my things until I met my wife, um, and I've been married several times before. My my children, unfortunately, um, I went to prison when they were toddlers. They grew up without me. We've reunited now, so. Um, uh, my whole life, um, I w would not allow myself to love or care for anybody, and I would not allow someone to love me. It was very toxic. I uh, just put a wall up, I said, because I wouldn't uh, allow people to hurt me. And if I love something, then you can hurt me by hurting them. So he just built this wall. When was your first robbery? Oh, Jesus Christ. I was eight years old. I remember beating a kid with a bat because I wanted his bike. <laughs> so you had the violence in you anyway. You had yeah. that yeah. madness. Um, we actually, uh, when I finally got out, man, I uh, was able to uh, follow my passion for music and one of our songs um, that uh, we just put out on Sony Records, Who Made Distribution, is Rage. And it's, and it's some of the lyrics, and it is the curse of violence lives in me. Huh. Yeah. This is why these podcasts are so powerful, because people could then understand you. And it's okay hearing people doing 20-odd years, 30 years for the crimes they've done, but they don't understand the abuse they went through as a kid, who's then moulded them into being someone who hates the fucking world because they feel as if nobody loves them. I, I agree with that. Um theory of it. I just, I found that growing up from 15 on, everything changed when I came home. Everywhere I went, I could go in to get a coffee or go in for a dinner. And they would say, oh, they would run right to the table. I don't care if it was the manager, the owners, whatever. I'd try to pay the bill. No, no, your money's no good here. 
That's it, okay. And that becomes a drug in itself. It becomes addictive because now you have a different status. It, it, and for the longest time, I thought, oh, everybody respects me. I'm different than everybody. And as I got older, I figured out it's not respect. It was fear. It was fear, and which is um, troubling because it's baggage I carry with me every day. Um, my wife, uh, Christ, I don't. Most nights I don't go to bed. Um, I stay on the couch with the dogs because I can't sleep at night. It's too many nightmares. But too many nightmares, man. So after eighteen, then you come back home. What sort of violence were you getting involved with? Did you enjoy it because you were getting a sense of power and fake um, love from people? I, enjoy, I it was very alluring to me the fast cars the money the women um what i thought was respect which was in actuality fear i thought it was i thought it was cool i mean when you're 18 and you know everybody is looking at you in a different way and it's like if you're if i'm walking down this side of the street and they are they cross the street it's it was different in Boston and New England at that time, you know, to sit down at the table with, with, with you know, James Whitey Bulger, even though he was a fucking rat and no one knew it, and he got what he deserved, karma, got beat to death in prison. Um, but to be around these people and raised by these people and, and molded by these people to be this tool, um, the boogeyman, that's, that's what they said. I remember uh, going to a meeting um, in New York, uh, I had, to, I had to go down and pick up some money and do something and deliver something. And I remember this old timer, old Italian guy. He literally, and this was probably about 19 or 20. He looked at me and he goes, oh, Christ, you really do exist. You are, oh, I thought you were an enigma, a ghost. Became a boogeyman. I didn't want to be in the limelight. I was, I, I, I preferred the darkness, the shadows. Um, there was a switch I used to turn off. That was it. It was a switch, an internal switch, and it was just business. But um, when something needed to be fixed, I fixed it. Yeah. What sort of stuff were you doing? Stuff I'm not proud of. Stuff I'm not proud of. What was James White Bulger like? A narcissistic piece of shit. Um, nothing happened in uh, Boston without Jimmy controlling it. And it didn't matter with who. It didn't matter with who. Was he as ruthless as people say? It was worse. He was a psychopath. So was Stephen Flynn, the rifleman. Complete psychopaths. Uh... Anybody that could, well, Stephen sleeping with his stepdaughter who he raised, which is completely disgusting. And then for him to sit in the same room and watch Whitey strangle her to death. And then for him to pull the teeth out of her mouth and bury her in a basement. Those are psychopaths. Why did they do that? Because she got hooked on drugs and uh, 
they thought she might say something that she saw. Yeah. Were you just getting told to do stuff for them? I would just get phone calls. Um, they would just not ask questions. Like like a robot? A machine. Yeah, a robotic machine. But my problem... Um, whereas Jim Whitey... If he killed somebody, he took a nap afterwards and didn't worry about it while someone was digging a hole. Me, I couldn't live with that. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. I hated myself. So I crawled in a bottle. Drinking? Yeah. Nope. I drank to be able to sleep. I would drink myself um, into an oblivion every night. To numb the pain? Because alcohol suppresses depression and feelings. Yeah. Uh, but it makes it worse the fucking the next day. It, it allowed me to be able to live within my own skin because I hated myself. I, I don't know how many times drunk I've looked in the mirror and maybe to shave, brush my teeth in the morning and took that beat and then just shattered the mirror because I hated myself for the things uh, that I was involved in. But uh, Jim, Jim was very um, calculating. He kept everything very compartmentalized. There was a South Boston crew. Then there was a Dorchester crew. Then there was a South Shore crew. And he never let any of them mix because if he did, he'd have to share the wealth around the board and he didn't want that. So um, everything south of the bridge, we kind of took care of. How powerful were the Irish mob in Boston? Ran everything. Ran everything. Uh, for an example, um, uh, I have someone that I consider a friend who's doing a triple life right now. Also, he'll never, um, he'll never come home from prison. He um, was disposing of a body. Got caught disposing of the corpse. They didn't have enough evidence to charge him with the murder. So they caught, you know, like I said, he was going to dump the body and dig the hole. So he got 10, 10 years for that. And uh, after two years, a parole was bought for him. He got out in two years. And um, David R. Clark. They call him Mr. Plug Ugly. So there was a, a piece of work that had to be done. Um, and David's Irish. And the Italians, I know they got these weird fucking rules where you can't can't touch another made guy, which is all a crock of shit to begin with. Because they'll kill each other they'll anyway. They'll kill each other and then fucking... And snitch each other. Snitch fucking, and then go to fucking, then go to fucking the funeral and kiss him on the forehead. <laughs> you shot him in the fucking back and then you're going to fucking kiss him goodbye? <laughs> it's it, fucked up. It's fucked up. Yeah. So uh, David uh, was suspected, uh, it wasn't proven, but he was suspected of... Uh, Killing two guys um, and, uh, for a contract. Uh, Mikey Romano and uh, Richie Devlin in um, Boston, East Boston. 
power struggle back then with uh, Cadillac, Salami, and all that stuff. So he was just a, he was a hired he was a hired guy, just a hit hit man. That's all. That's all. He was just doing his job. But he was out on parole for for disposing of a corpse. Went into Boston to kill these two guys. He cut a tire. So I legend says. Sliced the car, you know, the guy's tire. He came out and he bent over to look at his tire. He came out of the nightclub and he said, what the fuck? And as soon as he bent over, he shot him in the back of the head a couple of times. And then um, Richie Devlin heard the shots came out and he got shot in the head. Um, and he was driving home. He had a tail light out. He didn't realize it. State, state trooper pulled him over. Now he's already out on parole for getting rid of a, a, a corpse. Allegedly just pulled a double murder, a mob hit. He got out of the freaking car and just started shooting. Killed the, killed the state trooper. I mean, in the process, he himself got shot a few times. But um, he's, uh, it's just some different Batman. But I mean, he was out. You could buy paroles. You could, you could get out. You could get uh, preferential treatment back then. I mean, we used to have a furlough program. So if I was doing natural life, after five years, I could go home on the weekends if I was a good boy. Just come back by 7 a.m. Monday. Come back to intake on Monday morning by 7 a.m. Why is that? That's the way, that's the way New England works. Oh, that's the way, uh, it's the way Boston worked. No wonder everybody was fucking killing each other if you're home in five years. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, everybody back then, 70s, 80s, um, you know, obviously I was born in 1971, so I was an 80s child. It was still just like, it was like the fucking Wild West back then. It was crazy. How many people were in the crew? My crew? Yeah. Um, let's just say about a half a dozen. Yeah. Loyal? Trustworthy, or did everybody turn in that as well? No, no one on my, no one in our crew ever turned. All Irish, all Irish. That's where you, there it goes, isn't it? Yeah, I fucking love the Irish. Love the Irish, same as the Scottish. I had an IRA man on, John Crawley. Mm -hmm. He was doing business with Whitey Bulger. Apparently, he was shitting guns over, but <clears throat> that was a Valhalla shipment. Yeah, but he got fucking caught, yeah. and he never knew who made the phone. Somebody made the phone call and stuck him in. Um. Good guy, John. Really good guy. But he, I, I thought it might have been uh, Whitey. Could that have been a possible? Could have been a possibility? Though was he uh, always a snitch? Um. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, when everything came out about um, Whitey, um, he ratted on his first crew back in the fifties when he got sent to Alcatraz. So he had started ratting right out of the gate. Do you think all the top boys are like that? That's why a lot of them stay um, out of prison? I would like to think there's a few honourable guys. Um, I, I, again, I'm, I'm an illegitimate bastard. I was the dark secret no one was supposed to know about because my uncle's brother was a very respected man, family, so I wasn't supposed to exist. He just knocked my mother up. He never ratted. How he went there never ratted. Raymond Patriaca, senior, never ratted. 
Jerry and Julo never ratted. Um, other than that, the only ones I could think of that never ratted that were all the, the original regime. Yeah. How much money were you making back then? Sixty, eighty thousand a week as a teenager. Yeah, sixty, eighty thousand a week. Were you ever happy in that life? I thought it was. I thought it was. I really didn't. What's the worst thing you've seen involved in that life? Jesus. Yeah. Obviously, we don't want to incriminate anybody, but obviously, things that you can talk about are things that people have been charged with. Uh, we'll talk about since we're on the topic of fucking rats. Kevin, two weeks, weeks. Um, he was just, uh, he was a uh, whitey's um, gopher. You know, when he had to go dig up corpses and rebury them in different places. Um, I've seen some pretty, pretty crazy stuff. I mean, pretty crazy. I mean, I just don't want to incriminate myself. Or anybody else, but I, I've seen some pretty gruesome stuff. I mean, uh, my life's online. Everybody knows, man. I just, I think I've been involved in 26 separate prison stabbings. Because um, it's a different life, man. I just, unfortunately, um, sometimes I enjoy the violence. Um, so when I reunited with my daughter, and um, she said, Dad, my friend's in this and that, and it says this online, and it does this. And I said, listen, things you can't, don't don't ever ask me that. Don't, do not ask me that. All I can tell you is your father's, I never heard anybody innocent. Some guy trying to pay his mortgage, put his kids through school, and put food on the table, because there was no honor in that. I never hurt anyone innocent. But what we kind of specialized in, um, if you were a, a gangster, you were fair game. We we shook down gangsters and said. When did you go to prison? What age? First time. Youthful offender, I think. At, I had like a, Nine months stint for beating somebody up at a, a club at 16 or something like that. What was that feeling? Inside? Well, it's different. Every time I go to prison, it's, it's, uh, this, everyone knows you're coming. So you sit at a certain table with people and you're given respect. Um, I don't mind being locked up. That's, that in, that in itself is, is, is sad. Um, is that because you feel safe and other people are safe that you're not out? Because you didn't like hurting people, but you done it anyway? It got to a point, um, as I got older, there was no enjoyment in it anymore. There was, there was no enjoyment in it. It was just a necessity. You know, it's like, uh, like if we grew up together, right? Played fucking kick the can or stickball or rode our bikes together in the neighborhood. And later in life, you did something. 
and um, whatever the problem was, it had to be fixed. And I, I, you know, it's haunting and troubling when you look at somebody and um, you grew up with them, and now they're on their knees, pissing themselves. Some of them shit themselves, crying to God, begging, crying for their mother. And it's just like, you know, hey, man, you brought this on yourself, man. You knew the rules. Yeah, it's the Winter Hill Gang for people who don't know. It's fuck, it was hell on earth, is what it was. Um, the Irish mob war um, of Boston was the bloodiest mob war in American history. Sixty bodies were left laying on the streets during the war. Another 60 or 90 never, they didn't find them. And people were getting clipped left and right. Were they connected to, how was the connection with the five families in New York? Were they in contact or did everybody just do their own thing? Um, no, there was uh, far stretching tendrils, let's say. Yeah. You was a threat because of how violent you were yeah. with these families. Because you know yourself, someone who's ruthless and making too much noise and bringing too much heat, they become a threat and end up getting killed off. But yeah. we use a threat to these five families because of the attention that you were bringing. Yeah, we? I actually, you know something? You have my phone? Show you something funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, we show that on camera. What's that say? Yeah. <laughs> Are you friends? Yeah. It's always... um. See, the Irish, we just did work. We didn't discriminate. You know, her, you know, well, except for fucking Jimmy, Whitey, fucking. You never hurt a woman. You never hurt a child. And you don't go after people's family that are innocent. You just don't do that. There's no honor in that. So even, when did you know that he was a proper nutcase? Did you always know, or when did you start to waken um, up to it that something wasn't right? Mid twenties. Mid twenties. Um, there was an argument between. Um, I was given a uh, condominium in the South Shore, and then uh, Jim was a Louis Louisburg Square Whitey bought a con bought the condo directly next door to me, and um, I remember my uncle showed up. They got into a very heated conversation, and uh, he made it clear to Whitey. He said, the kid's off limits. He doesn't give you anything. There's no tribute. There's no kick-up. Stay the fuck away from him. And then he said to me, he goes, you're going to be moving. I don't want you near him. Not this close. And at that point, you know, the fucking antennas went up. And I'm like, something's off with this fucking guy. Yeah. Was it going to kill you? I don't know. To be honest with you, I don't know. But there was just, you know, there's always um, lots of stories about when Whitey um, was down at uh, the L Street bathhouse in South Boston, where um, he was a pedophile, I guess, is what they call it now, where he could sleep with young girls. Um, we don't know, we do know for a fact, um, there was a, a famous actor, Sal, Sal, Sal Menino. Anyways, 
someone walked in at a bar in uh, downtown Boston and uh, Whitey was fucking the guy in the ass. Yeah. It's crazy. So he ended up in the run for 16 years? 16 years, yeah. yeah. And then he got beaten to death in prison? Yeah, he lasted 20, well, 21 hours. Why is that? Karma. Think so? I think so. Did he have a lot of hits out in his life? Um, we, when he got arrested in uh, 2011, his last ditch effort was to try and keep Catherine out of jail. His girlfriend, Catherine Gregg. And um, we ended up being able to look at some of uh, internal official reports where he implicated myself and other people in the Isabella Gardner Museum heist as being the masterminds and as murdering 15 people to keep it unsolved all these years. Yeah. What was that heist? Largest heist in the history of the world. A billion dollars. Was it? How much got recovered? Nothing. How many people did they say that were involved? Well, they're all dead, is what they said. No one's ever been arrested, nothing's been recovered. What was that? What was it? What got stole? 13 items. <laughs> Most notably was Rembrandt's only seascape, Storm on the Sea of the Galilee. Where did they get stole from? Uh, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Boston. One billion pounds worth of stolen goods? Oh, yeah, one one billion dollars, yeah. That's tasty. It's literally still, to this day, the largest heist in the history of the world. And they says the Winter Hill gang was involved? Some people do. You did bring me a gift. I hope it's fucking one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to read the book. I believe it's chapter nine. Yeah. And that, that chapter is already being optioned for a movie... Um, I partnered with Greg Donis, um, through my, through my other business partner. I just asked him one day, I'm like, who is this fucking weird blonde headed guy that keeps showing up to our fucking concerts, man? I hope he's not when he, because again, we had the Andy Dick fucking, what's it? The Andy Dick fucking is the situation. Um, out in LA. <laughs> he's, uh, yeah. So anyways, it, he, uh, Greg Donis. Uh, Donuts Films. Um, his new documentary is uh, Blood, Lies, and Murder. So, uh, yeah, he's got, uh, we're on Peacock now with that. Um, and that was with uh, Rod uh, Egler, former head of the FBI, who just gave me a, a great review on my book. And um, Thomas Lang, who was the O.J. Simpson uh, co-lead detective on the O.J. Simpson case. So we got a good relationship with those guys. They're now retired, but uh, so Greg and I have um, partnered with uh, Blackstone Publishing, my publishing company. We're doing four one-hour docu-series episodes, and Blackstone is um, doing an option and an adaption for I think six seasons of a scripted series off my book, and then we'll follow up at the end with a prequel film that takes it back to the 60s when my uncle uh, founded the Irish mob with the Hill Gang and then we'll end it in 71 with my birth almost like the uh, Many Saints in Newark like mm -hmm. they did with the Sopranos yeah so when did you get your big sentence what year 
Which one? Did you not get 21 years or 24 years? No, no. Um, I was would, you know, all, yeah, it was just all and out. accumulative. Yeah. What was your biggest sentence? Seven or ten, I think. So what was that for? Um, kidnapping, attempted murder, and something else. What was prison like for you? I love. I don't mind prison. Were you taking drink and drugs in there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Not drugs. I don't. I just uh, bacon hooch. Um, uh, no, no. Have you ever seen the Poland Springs like one gallon water bottles? Mm-hmm. I had a guard that used to fill it with absolute vodka for me and bring it in for five hundred bucks a pop. Um, we made a lot of money on um, uh, this last sentence, uh, the Suboxins, the strips they sell. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could get a bottle of uh, 90. The guards would bring it in. Um, I'd give them $2,000 to bring in the bottle. And then we would cut, you know, the guys would cut the cut the strips up into 16s, 30 seconds, halves, quarters, whatever. Anyways, we were knocking down, I don't know. Twenty thousand a month, twenty five thousand a month prison off that. What prisons were you in? OCCC, SCCC, Concord, Walpole, Sousa Baranowski. <laughs> yeah. What was the worst? Um, Sousa Baranowski. Why? Violence. Um, it's a, it's the only level six maximum security prison in the Commonwealth now. How protected were you as in prison by being involved in the Irish mob? Did you have a lot of good cats? A lot of good contacts? Yeah, I never had a problem. Yeah. A lot of violence then in prison? Um, Yeah, it's a different element. Because you're, it's, it's, a, it's a food chain and there's a hierarchy. Um, it's, all right, if you, if you and I were in prison, right, I'd beat you up. I have a fear that you're going to, a concern that you're going to retaliate against me. Or if you beat me up, you're going to have that same concern. So if it gets to the point of having to put hands on somebody, my mentality always was like, let's just skip the foreplay and fuck and just bury a piece of steel in you and be done with it. So when you were in prison, John, did you ever think about changing your life and walking away or was it just too hard or were you just so caught up in that life where you didn't ever see a get out? Um, my last incarceration, let's say I got out, what, three and a half years ago? I've only been out three and a half years. Um, I decided then that uh, I wanted to change, that I had given half of my life to the family in the streets. And I just wanted to live my own life, whatever was left of it. And um, when I got out, I met with a lot of people. And I said, I don't want this. I don't owe you guys nothing. You don't owe me anything. So take that bag of fucking money back. I don't want it. I don't want to be looked at as the undisputed unopposed heir to a fucking throne because it's something I don't want. I just want to be left alone. And if there's going to be a, a problem with that, let's table it right now. How do you get out of that life? I just told him I'm done. You become a threat though because of the information that you have as well? No, I think my federal lawyer, Kevin Salvazio, said it best while we were filming a 
reality show last year. Uh, the di the director um, asked a question, and my lawyer chuckled, and he said, "Everybody's dead. He has nothing to worry about anymore. They're all dead." And three men can keep a secret if two are dead. Was that a risk for you to be seeing everybody dead? Was that easier than to make it the decision? Do you feel as if you, you wouldn't have got out if the, the top boys were still living? I honestly can't even say it. I looked at it like that. I just, I made up my mind. Um, there were some younger individuals that were using the name. And those are some of the people I met with. I said, listen, I've never done time with you. And I've never done a fucking crime with you. Stop riding the coattails. Don't use the fucking name anymore. Call yourself whatever the fuck you want. But not that. That thing has ran its fucking course. It's over. Whatever happened to your uncle? He died at 91. A free man. At 91, yeah. When did it pass? Oh, it's been uh, going on four years now. Was that a sad moment? Didn't give a fuck. Because at that point, you know, I'm in my late 40s, and I already knew what time it was. You guys used me. You used me to do the shit that you wanted to be distanced from. You made your little perfect fucking weapon, your little machine. You know, I thought it was, you know, I thought uh, when the older guys, you know, it was like a, a running joke. If they had somebody that owed money or something that needed to be addressed, they said, don't, don't, don't make us send the kid. Did you ever think about killing them? <laughs> yeah, that's funny you say that. Um, uh, we just got an email from uh, Rod Agler, former uh, head of the FBI, and he was telling Greg Donis um, the uh, documentary series. He goes, I already know for a fact if Sean had found Whitey, he would have killed him. And Greg asked me, he goes, is that true, Sean? I said, yeah, I would have cut his fucking head off. Did anybody know where he was? No, no one knew where the fuck he was. Yeah. He was a fucking nutcase, man. He was. <clears throat> he was a nutcase. Was he because your uncle passed? Was that one of the reasons why you got out as well? Yeah, because uh, I, I didn't, yeah, absolutely. I didn't owe anybody anything. And I didn't want uh, the passing of the torch, the proverbial torch. I didn't give a fuck. I mean, but you, when you, when it's, it's pretty much um, rotten's from LA. So when you walk around with certain tattoos in, in street, in the prison, people know. Exactly who you are and what you're about by your tattoos. It's as simple as that. That's that's your uh, resume, so to say. You know, I did walk around, mayhem, murder, pain, teardrops. Teardrops, does that represent killings? But the person's done, or is that just something? It could be, you're not going to say yes, do you know what I mean? You're not going to admit for fucking free murders, but 
You know what I mean? <clears throat> um, there's actually a, there's actually a thing they have uh, when you go into prison. Um, about teardrops, about all your tattoos. Uh, they say that, um, this is just them, not me. They say that if you have a red teardrop, each one represents five murders. I'm just looking to see if you've got any red ones. <laughs> I have three. <laughs> three red ones, 15 for the cameras and all the police officers watching. <laughs> is, uh, is that what your life was then, showing misery and pain? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. How is it now? Are you still, is it still the same? Because the mind's a powerful tool. It fucking can play tricks on us, man, and... It's hard to overcome when you see so much destruction and misery and torture in your life. I I spent the last several years surrounding myself with good people, honest, hardworking souls that have nothing to do with any kind of crime and just... Um, Rebuilding my relationship uh, with my daughter and my granddaughter, who terrorizes our house, um, and focusing on, um, ironically, my music, uh, which is mob rock records. Uh, I spend a lot of time in L.A. with uh, Ron, and when I'm not in L.A., um, I lay in bed around the couch with my dogs and with my wife, and I, I, I reflect. Um, you ever hear, like a soldier, hear survivor's guilt? I find myself doing that a lot, taking stock of my life. I'm like, why the fuck am I still fucking here? Why? Why am I here? Been shot four times, stabbed six times. Why am I still here and why is he not? Why do you think you're here? I'd like to think that it's to pay something forward. Um, there was a situation uh, two years ago, I think. Uh, two years ago. I was walking my dog, and I was in downtown Worcester. And I heard um, a voice call my name out. A young kid, probably about 16, maybe 17 years old. And I'm looking at the kid and I'm like, God damn. I don't know this kid, and he's too young to ever uh, have been involved with me. And then my mind said, fuck, maybe I did something to his father or an uncle or something. Fuck. And he came running up, and then I'm like, oh, maybe he just wants to fucking ask me for a couple bucks or a cigarette, because I smoked cigarettes back then. And he said, dude, you're that mobster. You shot all these people and did all this shit. That's so fucking cool. I went home and I told my wife. I said, I feel physically sick. I want to vomit right now. Because that's what he was looking up to me for. It was a very, very hard moment for me. 
I literally wanted to vomit. That's what all these gangster films and that do as well. Godfather, Goodfellas, Scarface. I used to watch Scarface and fucking love Glamorize it. I fucking love Scarface. I used to sit and get fucking high on coke and watch that back in the day. But the thing is, right, there's nothing. I never took, I never derived any amount of pleasure out of hurting another human being. I didn't get off on it. It wasn't a power thing for me. It was just, this has to be done. For who? For whatever reason, if it, if it was a job, it had to be done. I didn't ask questions. I I, I didn't care. I was the machine. Mm -hmm. You block out all your emotions and become cold to the world. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. How do you then learn to trust? Then again, what age are you now, Sean? Fifty-two. So how do you learn to trust? Going through that life and never feeling good enough and violent and being cold. It's it's an ongoing process for me to to learn to love to be loved because it was always a weakness to me. If I if I if I showed empathy or emotions to people, I thought I was weak. And that's something that could have been exploited. Um now I, I, again it's just an ongoing process. I, I'm not involved with Anybody that has anything to do with, with uh, crime now. You ever worry that you could go back? Make a mistake? Yes. I just had this conversation. Uh, I did an interview with a reporter, and they asked me, would you ever hurt anybody again? I said, honestly, I can't answer that question. Because if you hurt, if someone were to hurt my family, or someone I loved, a friend, I would just lose it. When are you at your weakest, do you think? When are you at your saddest? Um, I open my eyes. Every day. When I open my eyes. When was the last time you cried? Yesterday, last night, actually this morning, this morning, yeah. Yeah, but that's a good thing. Um, as well. Yeah, because it lets me know that um, I'm not a monster. I'm becoming a man. Showing emotion, and yeah, we're we, raised to show emotion as a weakness, but it, showing emotion is a strength. Admitting you've got fucking problems is a strength. I'm realizing that now. I mean, last night got a little hectic, um, and we were. At a, a function with the mayor of Atlantic City, and uh, there were thousands of people there. The music was just insanely loud, and um, a lot of people were coming up and, and asking to take photos with us. And uh, I had probably too many cocktails, and. Um, I was literally telling Roland, I was telling Rob Schwartz and everybody, I'm like, why the fuck am I here, dude? I, I can't do this. There's thousands of people here. They're bumping into me and not saying, excuse me. I mean, if I did my history or my due diligence right, you, you've been locked up, right? You know what happens in the joint if you bump into somebody and you don't, you don't acknowledge it and say, hey, pardon me, I'm sorry. 
I had thousands of people just to, uh, just to see a people last night, and I, I kind of was losing it. And I said, get me the fuck out of here right now, dude. I can't do this because people were coming up and just complete strangers grabbing my wife by her shoulders to take pictures and, and with us. And, and I just, I said, I fucking, I can't get the fuck out of here right now. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Right, so, so last night, yeah. What's the worst thing about that life of crime? That the next generation sees it as a badge of honor. Because I think that uh, what a lot of people do not realize, and I, which I just recently realized, is that mankind's greatest stock is our youth. Because that's how we continue. When I'm dead, I'm gone. What are we, what are we, what are we showing? What examples are we setting for tomorrow's adults? What are we doing? Yeah. Who shot you? Guy with a gun. Yeah. Did you know who it was? <laughs> was it four separate times or, or one, or one, <laughs> four shots? Separate time. It's funny <laughs> you say that. I get shot, I get shot in the fucking head. Thank God. This idiot watched too many fucking TV shows and turned the gun sideways and it knocked me the fuck out and cracked my fucking skull. But um, I left the hospital and the reporters are like, Sean, who shot you? I go, guy with a gun. <laughs> it's a dark question, Sean, but do you ever wish that bullet would have killed you? Yeah. I woke up uh, one of my ex-wives one night. She stopped by because I, 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 I never lived with anybody. Even though I was married, I never lived with anybody until I lived with Charlene. I always kept a separate residence. She stopped by. She was pregnant. And she went out on the back porch to smoke a cigarette. And left my door open in East Boston. I woke up to an individual. I was in bed next to her, and she, I think she was about six months pregnant at the time. I woke up to an individual burying a 32 inch bayonet into my neck. Short right through the neck? Yeah. <laughs> to the head and the neck? They stabbed me twice. Stabbed me twice. Fought. Fought out of bed. Destroyed the bedroom. Threw him down the stairs. Um, so, I had a 32-inch bayonet-type knife. And uh, he landed at the bottom. And I started to cut his throat. He was 16 years old. He was a kid. It was his. In, it was his initiation into a gang. So that kid put a bullet in your neck, stabbed you twice, just to get into a gang. Yeah. Making his bones, I guess they said. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't cut. I started to cut his neck, but when I saw he was just a kid, and I stuffed my fingers. Into the hole, two fingers into the hole. Walked across the street. 
laid up against the the wall, sat up against the wall, perched myself up against the wall. At, uh, there was a, a little bodega across the street. And uh, the owners came out and they had towels and they were trying to stop the other hole from bleeding. And I was just like, what? Shit, man. What a fucking way to go. Anybody got a cigarette? <laughs> Why did you become the target? I guess that was uh, just reputation, past reputation. Um, it's unfortunate. Uh, I think, uh, honey, what happened? when was it with Chase? Was it last year? Honey? My son, Chase. I got a call from my ex. She said, Chase, Chase has been arrested, 16 years old. So what do you mean he's been arrested? And then she said, they're going to let him call you from the police department. I said, right, I hung up. A few minutes later, I got a call. Talked to a, uh, I don't know, a lieutenant or a captain first. I said, why, would, why is my son arrested? Well, he's the prime suspect in a serious crime. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, he's under arrest for murder. So I got on the phone with him. I said, don't say anything. Wait till the lawyer gets there. But what the fuck were you thinking if you were involved in this shit? He said, I just want to be like you. You blame yourself? Absolutely. 100%. He spent his entire life visiting me in prison. What's happening with him now? Is he still in? They didn't have enough evidence to charge him. He, uh, Got released. Um, I think they held him for 90 days, 120 days, whatever it was. Um, he got released. And I got another phone call from my ex. Chase is in the hospital. What's wrong now? Like, we just got out two days ago. She goes, someone tried to kill him. My wife and I, I begged him before all this happened. I said, just come live with us. Go back to school. Do whatever you want. Just come live with us. The uh, well, last time I cried was just two minutes ago now. Yeah, but it's a good thing. You're showing emotion. You're yeah. showing strength. You're showing that the life of crime is no fucking way for it's, anybody it's in this life. Off, man. All it does is I spend... Every waking moment trying to make a living amends for the chaos and pain I caused. Because there's there's no such thing as um, uh, a victimless crime. You could be the biggest asshole in the fucking world. But somebody fucking loves you. 
whether it's your children, your wife, your mother, your sister, your brother, a cousin, an aunt, an uncle. So if I do something to you, I have affected, it's a ripple effect. There is no such thing as a victimless crime. It's taken me uh, a lot of years to fucking figure that out, man. What's the worst day in your life? I know you've had a lot of pain, a lot of struggle, but is that one of the worst? Um, that's one of the worst, and I guess I'm not, I guess I, again, I try to, last year, (laughs) I got into a disagreement with my wife, (laughs) and uh, she locked the doors on the house. I said, what the fuck's going on here? This is my house. The bottom door came off, the top door came off, <laughs> the bedroom door came off. And I was like, please don't lock doors in my house, and I just need to grab some clothes. And I went to an Airbnb with a, with a, a mutual friend of ours. But uh, yeah, that was probably because um, that night, uh, I had to be rushed to the hospital by a friend because I had a heart attack because I couldn't believe what I just did. And the same thing is uh, when I when uh, when I wrote the book, one of the most uplifting um, moments is my wife told me she didn't care what was in the book. She'd always loved the man she met, not the person I was before. Um, I have uh, you know, my greatest days now are watching our two-year-old, what I call my two-year-old terrorist granddaughter run around the house, just get into whatever she wants to get into, and watching my wife uh, play with her and, you know, the dogs and just my friends, man. It's, uh, you know, it's Ron's daughter. Um, she graduated fifth grade last year. Flew to L.A. just to go to her graduation. And stuff like that. It's it's you appreciate things now. You know things that I never appreciated before. The smaller things that are there that last forever. The memories of the smaller things, what you think are small, but they're so great. Like family time, spending time with family, trying to do the right thing. If you have you accepted your missus's love, can you accept that? If never having love your whole life, take love. But was, can you it, accept that? Or I'm learning now. You know, the day I got married, and uh, it's one of the happiest days in my in my life to watch my wife walk down the stairs with her father and her, you know, ex- you know, escorting her, and it was a very beautiful day. Um, yeah, I have something to live for now. Before I had none to live for. I didn't give a fuck. I had a reputation to uphold. I was uh, I was the ghost. <laughs> I was the boogeyman, you know. I was the guy that uh, had guys fucking thinking twice before they, you know, they put their key in their door, and, and, and a squirrel runs through the bushes, and they're, they're, you know, they're they're jerking, they're jumbling the key because what the fuck? Do you ever feel good enough? In what aspect? Life to be here, have someone love you. Um, 
I do question that every day. Uh, why, why am I blessed the way I am? Why does my daughter tell me she loves me after I missed her entire life because I was in prison? Uh, why does my wife put up with my nonsense? And why does my friends jump on planes and fly across the country to hang out with me on whims? Why does why why does he let me around his children? Because I mean, it's uh, you know, in theory, I guess I was a monster. I tell everybody that I used to be. A, I was a monster, but it's it's a journey back to. I'm learning how to become a human being again, but it's a daily job. Did you ever get therapy? Or speak to someone? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm shrink. What was that like? <laughs> this is like a fucking therapy session. You end up going back to the old life after this today. <laughs> you can ask my wife. That was that was quite that was quite an interesting day because they were actually filming for a reality show. <laughs> this guy actually thought he was hypnotizing me, and I was going along with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he, he thought he had me hypnotized, and then. Uh, he asked Otto what the hell the question was, right? I said, well, because my mother tried to kill me when I was a child. And he was like, what? And I'm like, dude, I'm fucking with you, man. I'm fucking with you. <laughs> and everybody in the room started laughing. I mean, thought he was trying to hypnotize me, but I don't know, man. It's, um, I think therapy is something that has to start internally. It's it's like a, um, taking a measure of pros and cons, weighing weighing you know the sins against the goodness, and can't I can't take back the past. Like we're sitting here doing this interview right now, right? If I rip a fucking fart and it stinks, we all know I just farted. I can't stuff it back up my ass. So I can't change what I did in the past. All I can do is strive to be better every day going forward. Where do you go forward with it all? Where do I go forward? Yeah. Oh, I just focus on my family and friends. And I focus on the business uh, ventures that I'm involved in. I try to set a good example. I guess my 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 quest is to change my legacy, because when I'm when I'm dead and gone, whether it's twenty years, to thirty years, and I'm just a fucking pile of bones in some box, right? I don't want someone coming up to my children or my grandchildren and saying, "Oh, he was such a fucking monster." Or he was this and he was that. I want to change my legacy. I want them. I want to be remembered for the good shit that I try to do. How do you protect your grandkids from seeing that life? Because people want to be like their father, their grandparents, if they see them uh, mad shit. Is that a concern as well? Because they might follow in the footsteps of you. My granddaughter, <laughs> she sees nothing but love. That's all she sees. Um... At two years old, she's 
you know, it's uh, she's got her uncle rotten. She goes, to, I mean, we just took her to Fenway to uh, one of these concerts, and uh, she just, uh, we just show her nothing but love and and and, and tenderness. But I, you know, I don't let her get away with the stuff that her mom does. I, I I guess I'm the heavy hand in the house. Like when she throws temper tantrums and fits or smacks her mom and says, no, I want my nini. You know, it's, you know, my daughter can't give her a bath because no, nini. My daughter can't change her diaper because it's got to be nini. But, you know, then it's funny in a way. <laughs> yeah, it's funny in a way because I'll come in and, and I'll say, don't you do that. And I'll take like the iPad or whatever the hell she's got playing with watching her shows on. I'll take that away. I'm like, did you just, did you just throw something? Give me that. And then all of a sudden she breaks down into the tears. And it's, you know, my wife picks her up because she runs right to Nini. But I'm like, she has to know there's right right and wrong. You know, she can't throw stuff. Like, she threw a freaking handful of something at me the other day. I was like, did what? Oh, no, 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 no. We're doing a timeout right now. What's your biggest regret in life, Sean? Getting into crime. Yeah, getting into crime. Do you ever question you? The car's life is, the life is dealt you? Do you ever question why me came through all that misery as a kid? Constantly. Constantly. Um, but I don't fall into the woe is me. Yeah, you don't want to be a victim. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't fuck, fall into yeah, fuck, fuck that shit. Fuck that shit, dude. But do you question it? Because I interview, I interview people from all around the world. I understand people very well. Yeah. Um, and it's just to give people an understanding of you, your life, your torment, your misery. Try to do the right things. Try to be a better father. Try to be a better grandfather. Try to be a better husband. A better friend. Yeah. Because like you said, people think we're a monster. I can see you're a fucking good guy. You talk about why the people go get on airplanes to come and see you. Because I, I see a heart of gold. I just see a, a kid who was confused and raised in a fucking life of madness where it became normal. Even though he didn't want to do it, he felt pressured and loyal in it enough that he did do it to feel love. You've done the wrong things to get love. Now you're getting love for doing, trying to do the right things. Uh, well, exactly. I, I am doing the right things... And I cherish everyone that is uh, what I consider in my inner circle family right now. I cherish yeah. them. They they mean everything to me. They are my world. How was it when you heard uh, White Eagle get murdered? How was the feeling when you heard White Eagle get murdered? Well, when Whitey got murdered? Yeah, how were you feeling? Um, <laughs> I got a phone call from uh, my federal lawyer. <laughs> And he said, please fucking tell me you haven't taken any phone calls from those guys or sent them letters or anything. I said, no, I haven't. Was that his main concern? Yes. So see, when your uncle passed away, could you have been top boy? Could you have been the boss? Were you next in line? I was the unopposed, uncontested heir to the throne. And you gave that up. I walked away from it. When I got out of when I when I got out of my last prison, that 
I did, went to a meeting, and there was literally a, a brown shopping bag full of money, a million dollars or something like that. And uh, I said, I, I don't want it. I literally spent two weeks sleeping on my friend's couch because I didn't know what to do. I didn't no place. I, I just was like, okay, I'm not going back to that life. And I had a friend that was not doing anything wrong. And he said, you can crash on my couch, dude. I only have a one bedroom. <laughs> and my girl fucking already is pissed, but you can crash on my couch. And after a few weeks, um, my attorneys uh, called me up and said, hey, come down to our office. And uh, I went down and they said, you're serious about walking away, aren't you? I said, I'm dead serious about it. And they said, all right. We're going to get you a condo. Here's some money. Don't worry about it. And then I met my wife. And I got a dog, too. What dog? <laughs> I got, <laughs> I've got the most fucked up dog in the world, man. <laughs> like fucking his owner then, <laughs> Oh, Jesus. No, listen. I've got the most fucked up dog in the world, bro. Um... So, uh, I was there was a, a dog at a shelter, and he was scheduled to be euthanized because he was too vicious and bite histories. And I called up, and then, uh, I looked at the picture. I said, "Fuck that!" I go there, I went down, and um, I gave the shelter a sizable donation, and I said, "Let me work with that dog." They said he's beyond help. He's too far gone. I said, just let me try. So they, they had to drag him out. <laughs> and first thing I did is I went to Patty's side. They tore my fucking hand open, gave me 17 stitches. I said, what the fuck? They said, that's why he's being put to sleep. That's why we're going to euthanize him. I didn't realize he was deaf. They didn't tell me that. And I said, no. You just got to have to make eye contact with them. So it was a process for my wife and I to uh, finally get them. Uh, I used to go to the uh, shelter for about an hour to two hours every day and bring them treats, and I would just sit out back in this enclosed area with him gaining his trust. Uh, then um, after a few months, they let us foster him. I had to get a $100,000 liability insurance policy on him. And then after a year, they let us adopt him. He's a 160-pound American bulldog. His name's Loki. He's, he's, he's fucking Loki. You know, he's just a weirdo, man. It's We have a rule in our home, right? If you come into our home and the dog is a... I, well, everybody knows, don't touch him. Don't, don't touch him. I mean, it's hard when you have an animal like... You can't, it's not a normal dog, if you know what I mean. You can't pet him. You can't snuggle with him. You can't do anything. It's all on his terms. When he wants to be petted, he will come up like every morning. He's got to go to my wife. She's got to scratch his head, scratch his back, scratch his butt, and then he walks away. Um, or Roland, when, when uh, Rotten's here, he'll jump up in bed with him, sleep with him, and guard him. Don't touch him. Do you see yourself in the dog? 
<laughs> yeah. Everybody, to everybody online, it was like, "What the fuck? You and your dog look exactly alike." <laughs> Honey, do you have a picture of Loki? And it's it's it's. But we have a, we have a standing rule in our house. I tell everybody, do not touch him. Even if he comes up and rubs against your leg, do not touch him. You will get bit. Um, but if he is overly aggressive to you on more than two occasions, you you can't come back to my house because there's something wrong with you. And he senses something I don't. How do you see your future? You see good things, positivity, lots of love, laughter. I see a lot of um, a lot of love, a lot of laughter. Um, this is uh, like I said, I've been out what three and a half years now. I, I I just fucking had a fucking whim. I said, "Fuck it." I've always loved music; it was my passion, but I didn't want to work with anybody. Rob Schwartz gave. Uh, I, I started my own label. Mob Rock Records. Um, Rob Schwartz was the only one that would give me a distribution deal through Sony The Orchard. Everybody else was like, are you fucking nuts? That dude's a fucking mobster. No one would even entertain it. Rob said, you know something? I see something. I see something there. Um, so I was uh, two years in a row now. Two years in a row, we've been uh, ourselves and other artists on our label are submitted for Grammy nominations. And uh, we have fun doing what we do. It's like now I, I'm able to, oh, that's, that's my baby. Beautiful. My sister, she's got two American bullies. I've got a Rottweiler. Oh, okay. Yeah. That is my baby right there, man. And then uh, we got I got my wife a, uh, I, I got the shit under the stick is what happened. Is uh, I own a construction company as well, and <laughs> my buddy who runs part of the business brings this stupid little fucking dog to work one day. I'm like, the fuck is that? He goes, it's my new puppy. So the dog's running around, and I'm on a remodel job, and I, I stop in to check on the guys, and I'm like, hey, get the dog. He's chewing on a fucking extension cord. He, he, he's he's going to fucking electrocute himself. He's going to fucking die. He said, what the fuck you want me to do with him? I can't leave him at home. He's too fucking young. I go, well, let me call Charlene. Maybe she'll babysit the fucking dog today. Took the dog home. That was it. Next thing you know, I'm buying the dog off him. He shows me the pictures. I'm like, okay, the father's a 100-plus pound German Shepherd. And the mother's a 60-plus pound fucking pit bull. I'm like, okay. I don't know what's going to happen with Loki because one of the things they told me, you, you can't have Loki or American Bulldog around other animals. I'm like, hey, we got to get a crate. So we get the fucking goddamn crate all set up and everything. Everywhere she goes, and my wife never carries a purse. Ever, ever, never. All of a sudden, she's got a fucking purse. The motherfucking dog is in the fucking purse, right? <laughs> the dogs are going grocery shopping. It's in the cart with her. It's everywhere with her. I'm like, you know he's not going to be that little forever. Needless to say, I, I, I get the shit into the stick. The fucking dog's a runt. I, I, I told Polly a hundred times, you owe me my money back, dude. Because now I've got this thing that should be a shepherd pit bull that looks like a coyote mixed with a greyhound that is 
fucking needs to be on Ritalin because he bounces off the walls all fucking day and he weighs 50 pounds. I'm like, what the fuck? But that's Diesel. I don't know why the fuck we named him Diesel. Dogs are the best thing on the planet, though. Dogs are <laughs> oh, fucking... Jesus. It's another love, man. Is that... Like, is it loyalty? Um, I tell everybody I'll choose my dog over a human being. It's unconditional love. That the, that animal does not know how to judge you or hate you. It they just know how to love. It's an unconditional love. They they're like a child. You have to care for them. You have to feed them because unless they're wild, they can't fend for themselves. For anybody watching, Sean, that's wanting to get involved in a life of crime, what advice would you have for them? Don't. Do not. It's a life of misery. It's an everlasting agony. It's something you can never escape because you can do a million good things in life, okay? A million good things. Do one bad thing, and that is what you'll fucking be remembered for, is that one bad thing. Fuck the million good things. It's that one bad thing. Someone will always bring that up. So for anybody who's going through struggle, going through torment, don't feel as if they're good enough, have been violent in the past, want to make changes, again, what advice would you have for them? Baby steps. Set goals. Work towards those goals. You know, uh, uh, when I originally, a few years ago, wanted to change my life and my legacy, I would wake up and I'd Fucking first thing I did is hit my fucking knees and I'd ask God, please don't let me hurt someone today. Please. It's just baby steps every day, man. I just don't want to hurt anybody. Don't I don't have any uh, reservations of hurting anyone. And it's I'm the most laid back fucking guy you'll ever meet, man. I just I'm happy just fucking just laying around and fucking going on tour and doing our shows and helping people. Um, There's just, uh, I'm on a journey. It's like, uh, it's an incredible journey back to humanity because for so many years I lost touch of humanity. How was it writing your book? One of the most fucking painful fucking things I ever did. How so? Because I had to re- Reflect on situations from my childhood till present, and I had to tear off a lot of fucking scars and scabs and and things that I really didn't know I had buried deep inside myself, and I had to relive every one of those moments. And that's when I started drinking again. Was it brought back all that? It emotion? brought back all of those, like like a like a torrential fucking flood. I had to relive all of those fucking instances throughout my life, and I really never I suppressed them. I buried them inside me, and emotionally, I just uh, I forgot about them. All the faces, all the screams, all the crimes, but to have to sit there and and and. 
open that box that I buried so deep inside me again. It was nights I, I would just literally say to my wife, why, why am I fucking doing this? What the fuck am I thinking? Why the fuck am I actually doing this, man? But as it progressed over the months, and I said, okay, there's a redemption story here. Maybe someone will learn something from this. Learn from my mistakes before, you know, possibly committing your own. Maybe somebody will will uh, learn something and say, what the fuck? Okay, uh, that shit's crazy. Oh, shit. Oh, wait a second. Whoa. Because everybody's a goddamn fucking wants to be a gangster, wants to be a thug until the fucking bracelets go on. <laughs> <laughs> until the bracelets go on then all of a sudden <laughs> uh, what do you want to know I, 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 yeah they're on the stand they become a professional witness why do you think there's so many snitches I, I don't think there's any fucking integrity anymore I, I won't say his name because we, we just uh, and he's all over the place we just optioned his book Greg and I and uh they called me. I had a Zoom meeting with the guy, and I go, "What? What? What? Aren't you a fucking rat? You're a rat, dude. You ratted out. You ratted out all of your fucking co-defendant. Fuck you, man. I'm fucking doing a documentary on you. What are you fucking stupid? They're like, Sean, you can't look at it like that. And I'm like, I just fucking flat out told me that he didn't want to do 23 fucking years." For 26 fucking years, gave up everybody to do 13. They're like, he didn't kill anybody. I said, I don't give a fuck. He got on the stand, raised his fucking hand, and pointed his fucking finger. Fuck off. It, it took a, a lot of soul searching for me to say, you know something? All right, whatever, dude. Whatever. If you want to, if you want to do a documentary on it, whatever. It's an interesting fucking story, whatever. I guess we'll fucking do it. See, when you're going over your book, Sean, and you blocked everything out for so long. See, when you started going over this, the things and the violence that you caused on other people, you remembered the screams, potentially people dying, robberies. Does your conscience then come to the forefront and you start realising what you actually done? Yes. It's, um, it's a nightmare. Generally, people think you have a nightmare, right? Because you go to sleep. I have waking nightmares because I have these thoughts all day long and, and it's weird triggers. I can see somebody that looks like somebody similar and it's just like a fucking firecracker going off of my head. I relive that moment right then. You have a lot of nightmares? Yeah. Oh yeah. Where can people buy your book, Sean? It's uh, at every major bookstore, Barnes and Nobles. It was actually uh, my... Uh, President of my publishing company, Blackstone Publishing, Brendan Deneen, uh, called me up and he said, hey, we're being inundated. We're actually going to put this on pre-sale, I think, uh, six months early. <laughs> yeah. hmm. uh, I know I, I got the, this thing. I know it's translated now. It's going to be translated into 20 languages. I got something from Japan the other day. I was like, I can't fucking read this shit. It's like fucking hieroglyphics. And they're like, Sean, it's a real good thing. I said, okay. Who's the most dangerous man you've ever been in the company of? 
myself. Myself. Uh, because uh, I, I would scare myself because I, I, I didn't know what I was. I, I didn't know how to turn that switch off sometimes. And I mean, if you haven't done it, to literally, you know, put someone, you know, tie them in a fucking chair and, and, and put their hands flat on a table and pound nails through their hand and then cut their fingers off and cauterize that with a blowtorch, a little portable torch, because I just needed to know what the fuck information you had. So it smells that you'll never forget. Um, you stabbed somebody in prison. I mean, you. I don't know, how long were you locked up for? I've been up and twice. Why yours, young offenders, and then adult prison at twenty-two? Okay, so I don't know, and I don't don't want to know. But when you bury a piece of steel in someone, and you feel the bones crunching, and that little that's things you don't forget. Pop. You don't forget that. It's very intimate. Um, but to beat and torture guys, uh, that stuff that, uh, those are those are tattoos on the, the soul. You think you're a tortured soul? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And what about your rock? What about the band you're in as well? Where can people what Where can people get involved? Because the UK audience is a massive podcast in the UK, so this podcast is going to do millions of views and downloads. You know that, don't you? Absolutely not. Yeah. I just know uh, AJ asked me to do it, and I said no problem. Yeah, this is the biggest in the UK, so this is fucking massive. This will book sales, everything. This is will be next level. Um, I I didn't even actually know Drew Shardlow was from. Um, the UK. I thought she was actually we doing the insider, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I'm like, "Oh, you're from England too?" She goes, "No, I'm in England." Mm -hmm. I was like, "Oh, okay." Yeah. I didn't know, man. Okay. It's all new to me. You know what I mean? It's it's. Yeah, okay. How is it speaking out though? How do you feel speaking out? Do you ever feel partly? It's it's, it's a, such a weird environment where because it's changed days. Everybody's <laughs> fucking speaking out, but you know, it's funny as I laugh and I say it in jest. It's like you know, here. My wife and I just got a 6,000 square foot mansion. We live in six fucking something acres out in the middle of the fucking mountains now. Um, driving fancy cars and just living our life. And I'm, you know, I say it in jest. I'm like, who said crime doesn't fucking pay? But I do when I sit by myself in my office. Like I had one of the uh, greatest conversations of, uh, that in recent, in recent memory, I sat with Angelo who's been around the world, the lead singer, the man, the myth from Fishbone. And I have not, I have not sat and had an intellectual and soul searching conversation like I did with him. Like I, I just looked, I go, oh fuck, the goddamn sun's coming up, man. We just, it was just he and I one-on-one -on -one, sitting in my home office, just reflecting on my life and his life and he started reading the his copy of my book, and he was like, "Get the fuck out of here." Good, man. 
He's like, this is heavy shit. Um, I, I just, I just, I don't know, man. It's, it's, I'm blessed to be alive. I'm blessed to have friends, the relationships and the opportunities that I have. Um, Almost fucking famous fucking drummers in the fucking world. He he didn't have to fuck with me, but he's become my brother. Yeah, um, yeah, man. Yeah, test human. Yeah, that's pink hair. Don't care, man. You know he's he's played with. So who's your boys you're with with now? Give them a shout out. Oh, give me a shout out. What do you want me to do? Oh, Rod and Rollin. Yeah, Rod and Rollin, King of Emo, Angelo Moore. Mm -hmm. who was standing in the camera so you'll probably see him lingering <laughs> hey right, if you want to go on the podcast have, you, hey listen <laughs> have you ever seen Fishbone Live yeah that's front man in the world yeah. he founded that band in 1979 he's one of the co-founders man mm -hmm. why is he out here you know why because my wife and I I guess adopted a young man from Jamaica to get I, to give him a shot at life because of the neighborhood he came from. He said, I don't want to become a statistic. There's two gangs in my neighborhood. They're going to force me to join one or the other. I don't want to be the next young black man that dies. I'm not a thug. I don't have a criminal record. So I said, fuck it. I can't save everyone. But he, you know, he's been with us for years now. Phenomenal artist. I called Angelo up, called Roland up. They were on a plane, took them to the studio. I'm like, here, this is how you get co-signed. As the magic happens. I mean, I'm a little hard on them in the studio. Actually, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I walked, he was overwhelmed. They only came down and said, hey, you better go talk to Junior. I went up there, and he was sitting in there with his rocking back and forth with his arms around his knees. I said, what the fuck are you doing? He said, uh-uh, this is way beyond my, uh-uh, man, no. I said, listen, motherfucker. These guys just flew from fucking L.A. Don't you dare tell me that you can't write your fucking lyrics because I'm not going to fucking write them for you. Write the fucking song. And I was laughing with these guys about it. And it reminded me of Full Metal Jacket. You know what I mean? Yeah. Pile, why is there a jelly donut in your fucking footlock? Yeah. So Angelo said to me, he said, Sean, why don't you just go out and let me speak to him? And next thing you know, I heard him in the recording. And it's going to make him strive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, uh, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. Oh, your life now, Sean, see when you start trying to do the right things and try to live an honest life. You then become a target, or do, is that totally done with your life could be in danger? Oh, no, because I think anybody that uh, I have a problem with is dead. 100% dead. <laughs> you know, but it's 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 once you start living that life, that I, I don't like, I don't like fucking being, because I spent so many years being in the shadows, being the ghost, and striving for that enigma. Then now it sucks. Like last night when I said, guys, get me the fuck out of here. I don't like when people come running up and like, can we have a fucking phone? Like I went to pick up dinner. Like we, we took Roland. He had an idea for uh, one of his solo songs yesterday. And I told him, I said, don't worry about it. I picked up the phone. 
I called Schwartzy. Next thing you know, I said, all right, I got you a studio. Don't worry about it. We walked in there uh, with Mig, Taylor Swift's producer, Leanne Rhymes' producer. I said, I told you I got you a producer. And in the end, I said, what I owe you? He said, not a fucking thing. Let me just keep working with, with, with your label and your artists. He said, it'll all come out. What it, you know, it'll all come out in the end. Don't worry about it. I don't, so let me pay you, dude. We've been here. But he said, nah, no good. But I, I don't like, I don't see myself as, a, as, as famous. It's more infamous. That bothers me. I'm not, I'm just not accustomed to that yet. I don't, you know, we went to pick up fucking dinner for everybody. It took a while because it was a big order. And <laughs> I go in to get the bags and the lady comes out. She goes, I hate to bother you, but we called the owner. Can we just take a, a, a picture with you real quick? I said, like, fuck me, man. I'm not used to that yet. This guy's used to it. Every time I go to LA with him, I recline the seat. And if we got to get out of, out of the out of the vehicle, mm -mm. he can't walk down the goddamn street without people fucking grabbing him. And I'm just I don't know. I'm trying, still trying to get my head wrapped around that shit. Yeah, it takes time. But Shawnee <laughs> boy, listen for coming on today and telling your story. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. No doubt you've lived a lived a fucking mad life. You've done a lot of bad shit. I genuinely wish you nothing but the best for the future, mate. I genuinely hand on heart. Wish nothing but great things for your future. You deserve it, especially with your upbringing. Would you like to finish up on anything else? Cherish what you have. Because we are all literally here for a blink of an eye. I don't care if you live to 100. We're only here for a blink of an eye. If you're young, do not commit crime. It's just it's 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 a life of agony you do not want figure out whatever it is you want to do in school um and you know, my stepdaughter is in college and i'm so proud of my stepdaughter my wife's daughter just 18 years old graduated jumped right into college perfect kid and i just think that um crime just i'm gonna go back on what i said crime does not pay because there's only two roads out and you're going to end up in a cell for the rest of your life or for a good portion of your life, depending on what crimes you commit, or you're going to end up in a shallow grave in the woods somewhere. Johnny boy. All the best, my brother. Thank you again. Thank you, man. Uh, I'll speak to you soon. Awesome. Podcast Network.